We interrupt this broadcast with some important news. Let's rewind and check out the biggest news stories from this week. It's time, it's time for Taiwan This Week. Good evening and welcome to Taiwan This Week with me, your host, Gavin Phipps. And I'm joined in the studio this evening by independent political consultant, Sean Su. Mm, nice to be here. And on the telephone by Taipei-based journalist, Ralph Jennings. Thanks for having me, Gavin. Tonight, we'll be discussing the launch of a new pork product branding logo initiative, government moves to investigate a China-produced talk show featuring Taiwanese pundits, the temporary suspension of entry to Indonesian migrant workers, and talks geared towards getting more migrant workers from an as-yet-unnamed Southeast Asian country, the launch of a new passport featuring big letters spelling the word Taiwan in English, the culture minister defending plans to reclassify the National Palace Museum's status, and fines for owners of those annoying over noisy motor vehicles with the help of some rather high-tech noise cameras. But we'll begin with oil supplier CPC on Tuesday of this week, celebrating the arrival of the first crude oil shipment from its production facility in Chad. The state refiner touted the delivery as being the first step in its efforts to promote national energy independence, and the shipment of 95,000 barrels of crude oil arrived at a wharf used by CPC's Darlin refinery in Kaohsiung more than a month after it left Cameroon. Now, According to CPC chairman Jerry O, the shipment not only represents a significant milestone for the company, but also proves that it is capable of exploring oil and gas resources on its own. O also told reporters at a ceremony marking the crude oil's arrival that CPC is now planning to copy its successful exploration experience in Chad to find more oil and gas resources for Taiwan. Now, CPC signed an agreement with Chad in 2006 for exploration rights, and new oil and gas reserves were discovered at the site in 2010. The company obtained a 25-year licence for development of the Oinks oil field in Chad in 2017. And CPC says the oil field is estimated to have reserves of around 34 million barrels. It currently yields, though, only 5,800 barrels of crude oil per day at full capacity, but that yield could reach 9,000 to 9,500 barrels a day soon. The oil field is CPC's first overseas oil field operation in nearly four decades. Now, interestingly enough, here CPC owns 35% of the oil exploration rights to the Chad project. The Chadian government owns 30% and the other 35% is owned by China's CEFC Energy Group, which is raising concerns here that Beijing could muscle out CPC at any time. Sean, there you go. So CPC gets its oil field, but it's sort of tied to a Chinese company, which of course has worried some people. Well, this issue is still under investigation, and uh, it has been, um, I think, actually quite concerning. I don't think it's quite so such an independent energy source because of that. Uh, as you know, Chad basically recognizes China, and China could pressure Chad. Also, uh, as we know, Huaxin, or you know, CEFC, which is that Chinese conglomerate, is under the pressure of the Chinese government. So uh, this doesn't really bode very well. Uh, politics could definitely get in here and change um, the atmosphere at any moment, I think. So uh, personally, I think it is not as positive as they had CPC says. It's just not. Now, we know that uh, the controversy is because originally in 2015-2016, when they were having meetings with China's Huaxing, was that uh, they would only sell 28%. But then Huaxin insisted uh, at least 33%. But then they said, we want 35%, the same amount of shares uh, uh, that you have as uh, Taiwan CPC. And 
it actually happened. And this was just months before uh, the Thai administration came into power. So I think we're going to see in the coming months, uh, you know, what the story really is. Ralph? I was wondering the same thing as you described the case, Gavin, because China obviously has diplomatic relations with Chad. Taiwan wants to be more energy independent. Um, as you mentioned, they haven't run their own oil field for some time. So this is an opportunity for them. And I'm sure they're aware that China could make a political move. They could pressure the Chad government to give more of that that particular share over to the Chinese side, or at least take it away from the CPC. Um, and I would imagine because CPC is aware of it, they've probably made some backup plans to get their oil somewhere else. And they're probably also ready politically to point the finger at China if anything goes wrong there. And to me, I think if China wants to be, you know, to show any sort of goodwill toward Taiwan, perhaps they're finished doing that for a while. But if they ever do, they could leave that thing alone. And where do you think, Sean, they could go? CPC said it's looking for more oil and gas fields around the world. I mean, where could it go and do this? Uh, Well... Unfortunately, I think a lot of this still depends on politics. I I do think that one of the reasons why the CPC took so long just to get this done, and by the way, in Chad, for instance, even though they they finalized the Chad in 2006, they actually started exploration in Chad in 2003. Where can it go? Well, of course, they're, they're already saying that they hope to find more in Chad itself. But this is no matter where they go, uh, you know, be it somewhere in Africa or anywhere else, it's going to take decades, um, at, at least it seems like, because these things aren't things that happen overnight. There are a lot of costs that have to do uh, that are involved. And even if it goes somewhere else, uh, it is very common for um, oil exploration to be offset, the exploration costs to be offset by giving more shares and and if they're going to be doing this every time you know I hope we don't get the same cycle in the next country that or place that we finally get a field that is viable and of course Ralph maybe they could go to your country of course because of course Taiwan doesn't have a problem with possibly drilling for oil in the Gulf of Mexico that'd be uh, interesting if um, I mean Trump's going to be in office another month and he's been very kind to Taiwan at least on the surface so yeah, make use of that, that golden month there and try to do some Gulf of Mexico explorations and look for shale, whatever it takes over there to to uh, put something together. I think more, you know, more broadly and probably more wisely, Taiwan will focus as it continue to focus on renewable energy here, and they've done already lots and lots of investment in that very heady goals for 2025. And if that's what if they want to be self-sufficient. Doing that locally makes a lot of sense, plus it's good environmental policy and there's a lot of expectations locally that that will take off. Uh, yeah, actually, um, Taiwan has been a very big market for uh, Asian uh, for Asian green energy, one of the largest ones for solar, uh, wind. So I personally do think that that would be a good deal. Plus, uh, you know, there's been a lot of push with that even locally. Uh, just look at the huge number of Gogoro charging stations and all these scooter companies signing up to work with that. So green energy is definitely something Taiwan is taking. So hopefully maybe in the future we'll find out that the CPC, uh, you know, won't need that much oil. Uh, crude oil. But do you see CPC looking to America? Because obviously Donald Trump is trying to open up the Arctic refuge. 
to drilling. <laughs> I mean, do you see CPC trying to get a bit of that action? Uh, I think they could, but that's going to have some blowback from local politics. And as we know, in Taiwan, a lot of things are involved with politics. And moving on, the government this week sought to move on from last Friday's pig offal throwing incident in the legislative chamber when Agriculture Minister Chen Ji Jong launched a new branding initiative which is aimed at helping customers distinguish whether shops and restaurants are using predominantly local or imported pork. The move comes as the Council of Agriculture is rolling out its new Taiwan pork logo. Now the logo depicts a gold pig on a green background and bears the words Taiwan pork in Chinese and English. The Agriculture Minister says it symbolises locally sourced pork pork, covering everything from pig skin to offal, and all food-related operators are eligible to apply for the use of the logo as long as the main raw materials used in their pork products are local. Now, according to the National Animal Industry Foundation, there have been some 5,500 Taiwan pork applications for the logo so far, and 284 Mossberg outlets here in Taiwan have already received their logos. Now, the Council of Agriculture also says that it expects the number of these applications to use the logo to reach 15,000 or more by the end of this year. So, Ralph, we don't have to linger on the pork ractopamine issue, but obviously we've got stickers and now going to the consumers to prove that restaurants and other places that sell pork products are using good Taiwan pork. How do you see this going down with the local consumers? Do you see the local consumers looking for these labels or just walking in and just buying pork? I don't think the consumers will have too much of a reaction. Well, they'll, they will like seeing it. They're happy to buy from buy locally as much as possible there are a few people who who consciously distrust imports from the united states and other places that that sell meat into taiwan i think this strategy is more aimed at making the the pig farmers here happy because they had grown obviously a bit upset over the uh the permission given i think even back in august Um, correct me if i'm wrong but permission to begin importing American pork, the farmers protested that, and um, now we have this campaign which could put them at ease. Basically, the government saying, "Hey, we care about your your business, and we're going to make sure that everybody in Taiwan knows it's your pork by walking into the restaurant." Well, this reminds me of uh, 2012 um, when Taiwan started letting in American beef that had some ractopamine residue. And I remember a lot of signs, especially 2013, by restaurants uh, emphasizing that their beef was from other places like Australia and New Zealand. Now, I do think that the labeling would help those who are very particular about where they get their pork. Um, and I think that's that's fine. That would be great. Uh, that said, I also have read uh, some comments where that in Taiwan, Taiwan's pork can be improved. For for example, 70% are unrefrigerated, which if you would tell an American, they'd be horrified about that idea that, you know, your pork would be delivered unrefrigerated to the marketplace or to your restaurant. So I think, you know, um, yes, it's great that they have a label. Uh, I do think Taiwanese pork can be competitive. uh, And given that it's a completely opposite from the American beef market uh, in Taiwan, that I'm not really too worried. And exactly as Ralph said, it does uh, sort of give something for the Taiwanese pork uh, uh, companies. And the labeling is better. It's not perfect. Uh, personally, I would have chosen like something that was really bright, but it it looks good. You know, it's very easily spotable. That, that pig logo is very easily seen. So I look forward to, you know, um, trying some more specific Taiwan local pork. And of course, on Thursday, Sean, pork importers came out and said, hey, we're going to have our own logos 
to prove that we're not importing ractopamine pork. And the government said, we, we applaud that move. You can have as many logos and stickers as you want on your pork. Well, I, you know, we already get a lot of stickers in Taiwan culture. Every time I go to 7-Eleven or Family Mart, I end up with a pile of them. So I feel that these stickers are not necessarily a bad thing. Good. If they want to label their pork to say that there's no ractopamine, great. Uh, actually, I don't really think it's that major of an issue anyway, because as we all know, uh, it's actually ironically due to China. And this is because in 2019, there was the African swine fever, which decimated China's pork sources and the United States food company. Souped in. So by December 2019, virtually no major U.S. food company, uh, including Tyson Foods, uses ractopamine in their pork. Uh, so it's not like it's we're going to be riddled with ractopamine everywhere. And plus, uh, I have heard people who said that, you know, well, you know, Taiwanese tend to eat these pig parts that, you know, Americans tend to eat less. But I don't buy that argument because Americans eat tons of hot dogs. And that's the parts that usually have the highest. You mean the mystery meat? You'd be talking about meat. the mystery meat there, wouldn't you? Eh? <laughs> and Ralph, of course, these pork importers, when they turned around and said, we won't be importing the ractopamine pork, and the government cheered that on. So, obviously, the government here is in a bit of a situation, but it could be a positive situation for them because, of course, they're, they're saying to America, we'll open our market for your lovely pork, but if no consumers buy it, it's not the government's fault. I think there needs to be a bit of inspection work going on here at the U.S., importers are saying, or sorry, exporters, people importing here, if they're saying, look, we don't have any ractopamine in, in the pork and it's totally safe, then the um, inspectors here should verify that, look at some of the samples, do whatever they do when we have meat products entering Taiwan and just say, yep, it's true. There's indeed nothing to be worried about. And then those brands would be able to boost their reputation among the Taiwanese. Well, of course, it's January the 1st they're going to let the pork in. But do you see this, this issue dragging on, Ralph? Or do you think maybe after a few months the public will just not really care? I think the public will get really used to seeing labels and stickers. As Sean mentioned, they're everywhere. So it's just another sticker that you see when you walk into or out of a restaurant and check out a menu and people will sort of forget why they're there. Um, whether it drags on, I suppose, depends on how many... U.S. imports of pork are allowed and whether they are viably, visibly competing with, with the local products. If they do compete, then the pork farmers will get upset again and put some more pressure on the government. Which, of course, the KMT would like, Sean. And if the public forget all about it, then the KMT haven't got a leg to stand on, shall we say. I'm sure they will find another issue in order to <laughs> compete with. But, I mean, do you think they'll con the KMT will be leading... The, the pork rectopamine issue for a long time. Uh, I, I don't really think it will, uh, personally speaking. I mean, there's limited data to look at, but um, as Ralph said, I mean, people will get used to it. Uh, even looking at history, in, after 2012, 2013, a lot of restaurants, yes, they still label where they get their beef from, um, but, you know, I mean, you don't see people specifically going and saying, Okay, here's a really simple example. Taiwan has some of the most popular Costco's, uh, popular, most popularly frequented Costco's on the planet. And one of the biggest purchases that people get there all the time is American beef. And there's actually no stickers that tell you the difference whether or not these have ractopamine or not, but people don't seem to care anymore. 
And it, that's because they're going shopping and they've got to get their beef, I guess. Anyway, talking of beef, the government this week announced plans to investigate a new online political talk show produced by China's Southeast Television, which features well-known Taiwanese pundits with rather, well, how do we put this, pro-unification opinions. The show is titled Diverse Voices from the Taiwan Strait and is advertised by Southeast Television as being a special programme. It airs on China's Baidu and can only be accessed by downloading a mobile app. So there you go, they know who you are and where you are when you download it. But I digress. Now, pundits on the show include former KMT lawmakers Alex Tsai and Cho Yi, former Taipei Deputy Mayor Li Yongbing and New Party spokesman Wang Bingjong. And they make great play of criticising Taiwan's military, the government and just about anything they can sully here in Taiwan in order to appeal to their target audience. Of course, the government expelled two reporters from China's Southeast Television Station in July of this year on charges of violating the conditions of their work permits for hosting television programmes here. Now, the new Southeast Television show has no host, ironically enough, and the camera solely shows the Taiwanese talking heads, well, talking. Now, the Mainland Affairs Council says the show is part of Beijing's cycle warfare online media machine that's aimed at dividing society. While Premier Su Jingchang told lawmakers this week that the government is taking steps to control the spread of Chinese propaganda on the internet. So, Sean, have you watched this show? Yeah, actually, I was able to find a lot of clips online, um, especially on Baidu. So th- this definitely has been making the rounds a bit. And uh, I, I I do think it is defeatist propaganda. And um, and there's a lot of reasons why. But basically, it seems like the show's developed... Uh, well, their, their shtick is the Gish Gallup uh, logical fallacy because they know there's limited information bandwidth across a lot of mediums. So, you know, the clips I saw, uh, I could probably write you know, several books or could talk for hours um, over how wrong they are. Um, For instance, the simple one uh, that was commonly cited was them ranting about uh, Chinese soldiers and their running speed. Now, this really strikes me as a little bit odd because, well, actually, it's very, very, very uh, surgical, I think, because a lot of people think running speeds of soldiers are what matters in war. You know, you watch uh, Saving Private Ryan and, um, you know, you see people um, um, running, looking all exciting, you know, in movies and stuff or trailers. However, um, this isn't actually the case. What's most important in war is, for soldiers at least, is marching speed. Um, the, the, the weight that we're talking, I mean, like I said, I'm already going on a long tangent, right? The problem with Southeast Television's show is that they're skirting Taiwanese laws, right? Uh, we have an act that specifically governs that China can't have shows in Taiwan in this manner, and so it's been bewildering to watch, actually. Uh, do I think it should be investigated? Yes, because we are looking at people from the People's First Party, from the New Party, uh, you know, basically uh, making Chinese propaganda that's used against Taiwanese, ultimately. And Ralph, do you think it should be banned or do you think maybe it has such a, a minor audience? Does it matter? I haven't seen any of the program. In fact, to be honest, it's the first time I knew that this um, this particular show was was coming out online. So, with that caveat, I don't think that. <clears throat> well, I would like to go back to the CTI TV case, where here's another a, a relatively mainstream news channel that had openly pro-China views about, especially about unification with Taiwan, 
and they lost their license last month to be effective this month. Um, so the government at that point, the NCC said that um, this was because of repeated errors in their coverage and also failure to reform uh, and to heed some warnings to change and to not make these mistakes, which they didn't do. So they were shut down on that basis. Now, if the NCC or somebody else in government is going to do the same to this um, this program, this online program that you're referring to, then they have the legal right to, they have the legal basis for it, and they should go ahead and do that. Um, however, I think that the government here should be careful to not be perceived as only chasing media outlets that have coverage that goes against their interests, and because that's what China's doing, that's what authoritarian states do, and Taiwan doesn't want to be seen doing that. Even if they have if they have the legal means to go reform the media, um, they should go do that across the board, regardless of what the media are saying about the Taiwan government or some other government. And of course, Sean, this is on the internet. Uh, yeah, and uh, it's going to be very hard to block. I mean, yes, I believe it is a loophole. Um, it isn't the first time Southeast Television has been called out. So they've done several moves, such as not having a host, uh, you know, doing these little and no street interviews, right? Uh, and they said, well, we'll just simply get the people who are pro-unification to spout the propaganda that we usually do. And again, I don't think Taiwan could really easily stop this. The reason Reason being because a lot of the people who are on the show do have a right to broadcast their opinions. Uh, here's an example. One simple way they could get across, uh, around this is simply have all the people that are involved in future shows to simply broadcast and upload their clips online. And then China could simply collect them together and then you know have their show that way. Can you block that? Not really. So the best way, I think, is to point out what they're doing, which is defeatist propaganda, gish galloping, uh, using logical fallacies, uh, you know, being really one-sided and cherry-picking, and so people could be educated and understand what to watch out for. I, I agree with Sean there, although I don't know if the government is really in a position, you know, in terms of their resources to go try to correct everything that's being put out by a particular media outlet. They, they, they can and they should if the outlet is criticizing the government itself and saying they did something that they didn't do, then you need to correct it, um, as they would with any media report they don't like. Um, now, whether they actually target this program or Southeast Television per se, and call out everything they say about China, I'm not sure how much it would help. Um, it might actually drive more viewers to the program. If it's a, a niche program without that much of an audience, then the fact that the government is contesting what they say might ironically drive more people to go listen to it and you know, say, well, what's that all about? And then, and then you, you give them more, more value when you don't want them to have any value. So there you go, Sean. Ralph sent you the government should just ignore it. The Streisand effect is real. real. However, the government doesn't always have to itself uh, uh, counter it. There's plenty of uh, nonprofits, small startups, little groups, grassroots organizations that could actually counter this news as well. And if the government really wants, they should do that. After all, Southeast Television's real audience is people in the PRC. So you can't exactly stop a PRC station from broadcasting anything on the internet. There's nothing they could do about that. So, you know, if you really are disturbed by it, come out with your own propaganda. On the YouTube.
Yep. Or however you want, I guess, yeah. <laughs> anyway, we have to take a short break now, but we will return after these rather important commercials. Welcome back to Taiwan this week. Now the government will be temporarily suspending entry into Taiwan of Indonesian migrant workers for two weeks from today. The move follows a spike in the number of confirmed coronavirus cases from Indonesia in recent weeks. Now Indonesian migrant workers will be denied entry from today through December the 17th. And the Epidemic Command Centre says a decision on whether to extend the ban or to cut the maximum cap for accepting Indonesian migrant workers will be based on the latest number of pandemic cases in Indonesia within the next two weeks. Now, now, according to figures from the government, there were 264,984 Indonesian migrant workers in Taiwan as of the end of October. And of that number, 253,285 were employed as caregivers or domestic workers. Now, this week also, Labour Minister Xu Ming Chun, on Wednesday of this week, in fact, announced that the government is seeking to recruit migrant workers from another Southeast Asian country that does not currently provide Taiwan with foreign workers. And according to the Labour Minister... Two rounds of discussions have already been held with representatives from that as yet unnamed country. Now, it's hoped, according to the Labour Minister, that a deal can be signed with said country basically next year as early as and migrant workers from said country will be able to come to Taiwan by 2022. So, Sean, of course, stopping Indonesian migrant workers, obviously, for health reasons... Okay, that's what the government did. But of course, a lot of these Indonesian workers are employed as caregivers and domestic workers, which of course Taiwan has a dearth of. Yeah, this is uh, this is actually related to a much larger issue because even though um, it is correct that Indonesia right now is getting about four thousand to five thousand cases per day of new Indone- uh, of new coronavirus cases, so that's not a small amount. I do understand why the government has a temporary suspension of Indonesian migrant workers coming in. Um, and I, I get that. That's great. However, there is also another issue that's related, which is uh, the fact that Indonesia recently had passed some laws, uh, uh, which means that caregivers and uh, other migrant workers may have more of their um, fees being compensated by uh, their employers, which are those in Taiwan. This has actually opened up a sort of a rat's nest of a lot of issues, um, because in Taiwan, we do have a broker system. Uh, we also have a government-run system that sidesteps the uh, uh, you know, brokers, but uh, unfortunately, it only covers Philippine and Thailand. Plus, with that system, there's a lot of paperwork, there's no guarantees. So the Direct Hire Service Center, which is uh, the government entity that handles that isn't one that's applicable for Indonesians. Uh, on the other hand, uh, uh, there's also a lot of poorer people who do need caregivers, uh, and they have to pay uh, up to 100,000 NT. And if that person only lasts a couple of days, they have to pay all over again. So I do think there needs to be a lot of reform in terms of the labor system. Uh, And then, of course, there's lots of stories about how um, brokers have been exploiting. But going back to my earlier example about poor people, for example, there's one account about one man who was about 35 who was in an accident, became a paraplegic, and he had 20 caregivers in 15 years. 
and that means he had to pay all their fees every time. This makes it completely unaffordable by him because as a male who's 35, I would understand that a lot of these caregivers who are female would be a little bit less comfortable considering he has extra needs as a paraplegic. So, yeah, uh, other countries have heard that the Taiwan government has tried to work with, um, or they're considering, include countries like Nepal and so forth, but it's going to take some time. And some of this is also related to the fact that Taiwan is an aging society. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm with you on all of those points. I presume that the people from Indonesia who are here now, Gavin, you decided to a statistic, they will be allowed to stay, and that will cover a lot of the needs that people have at the moment. And in terms of brokering more people into Taiwan from other countries, it seems logical that Taiwan would pick another South or Southeast Asian country that doesn't have uh, a huge virus caseload and set up a deal to have people come in from there. Um, and I'm sure that it'll help Taiwan's economy overall to have that additional diversity <clears throat> instead of just having people come in from Indonesia, Thailand, Vietnam, the Philippines, if we have a, a, a provider that will be helpful perhaps, um, not only for the aging society, but also for other jobs um, that uh, are not so popular among the Taiwanese. And of course, the government this week said the ban on the temporary ban on Indonesians will affect 1,000 families who are seeking Indonesian caregivers at the moment, Sean. So, of course, do you think Taiwan maybe should – obviously, these are, I'm going to say stupid thing, but they're, they're considered cheap labor, basically, in a nutshell. I can't say that any other way. But do you think maybe the government should think about maybe maybe making caregiving a job that local people could possibly move into and have some interest in doing? It's, it's nursing, for example. Mm, it's not going to be easy. These are problems that not only Taiwan is facing. I mean, this is issues that South Korea has faced. These are issues that Japan is facing today, very real right now. And yes, there indeed is a shortage of uh, caregivers, especially now we're in a pandemic. Uh, all we can do is really reform our system greatly uh, and try to attract more people. Yes, it does sound easy to hire someone locally, but it's not going to be cheap. And that is a major problem. The money issue is... Uh, uh, but I do think South Korea is actually an example we can kind of follow. Why? Because they ended their broker system in 2004. They expanded it. And here's the thing. Remember I said how, you know, like the wheelchair man, I use him as an example. He kept switching workers. One of the simple ways is have the government act as a cushion. You know, just like a national health care system, labor can be treated similarly as well. And then maybe you can pay a little bit more. We can help get people from other countries. It doesn't have to be limited to Indonesia. Uh, yeah, but all that requires a lot of reform. We are really dependent on the lawmakers here. And of course, Ralph, another bit of reform that could be thrown in there was maybe Taiwan could look to China to get caregivers. I was just going to say that they already take a number of Vietnamese migrant workers for various jobs, and some of them work in, in people's homes as caregivers. So why not expand the labor market there, bring in more Vietnamese? That country is, is uh, almost completely COVID-free. Yeah, there's a few stray cases running around, I think, but that's a popular place already for Taiwanese investors. There's a lot of uh, historic relations there in the business community. Bringing them in from China would pose obvious questions, given the political ties are rather poor at the moment. 
Uh, a lot of things have been cut off or cut back, such as tourism and investments. So to open up an, another channel with China could pose the same kind of problem. Even if it's open, China gets upset someday and they, they shut it down and then you don't have that source of labor anymore. Indeed. And that's one of the biggest problems Taiwan has when they deal with China. So diversification is probably best. And moving in a completely different direction now, Taiwan passport holders will be able to get a brand new spanking little green travel book from January the 11th when the Ministry of Foreign Affairs launches the newly designed passport. The Foreign Ministry unveiled the new design in September and it features the word Taiwan in a larger font and Republic of China in smaller letters. Two, in the words of government officials, clearly distinguish between Chinese and Taiwanese passport holders. Now, when the new passport is launched on January the 11th, people who file applications on that day will be eligible to receive gifts and there'll also be a computer-generated lottery for the first 100 people who do so and get the first 100 numbers. So, Sean, will you be jumping down to the Bureau of Consular Affairs on the January the 11th day to claim your new bigger Taiwan word passport? Don't get me wrong. I do like the new passport because I think it'll there'll be less confusion on it, uh, especially when I travel to certain countries uh, overseas. But uh, I don't know if I'm really going to run down there to grab a gift. Um, <laughs> but it's a competition. And you receive gifts. and It's a competition, Sean. There has to be a competition. It, yeah. A, another competition. Here we it go. almost sounds like, you know, uh, uh, Watson's or other markets where they have the speakers playing in Taiwan. And it just says things like, yo, my, yo, quiet, oh, you better rush in. You got to buy it right now. And I don't know if I'm going to really need to do that. Uh, my passport still has at least uh, three, four years left. So <laughs> I don't know if I'm going to rush down personally. That said, um, I might go for it, but I don't know. I'm, I'm not going to be one of those people that will be waiting in line at four in the morning, you know outside trying to get one of these early passports it's just not enough for me but that said uh, the new passport is attractive i do like how it emphasizes taiwan uh, so there's going to be less confusion with that republic of china label on top of that um, there's going to be ancillary repercussions to this too uh, at least people who are visiting hong kong won't that have stickers over their passports uh, that's been a thing won't probably be turned away <laughs> um and and in, in for those who are concerned about republic of china no longer appearing on the passport it does in smaller letters but this time three times I would have only one, perhaps not so welcome comment here, but who needs a passport anymore? What are you going to do with it? <laughs> you have a good point. But, I mean, what do you think of this new design? I mean, it's not Looking at it quickly, the passport, the new passport, it doesn't look radically that different. Um, I think it's going to be really welcomed by people here. It's like one of the most you know, common frustrations you hear among Taiwanese travelers, whether they go public about it or not, is they get tired of being mixed up with, with China, the People's Republic of China, whenever they go somewhere. Um, there's just there's a lot of sort of, you know, extra questions they get asked when they go in and out of different countries, and sometimes they get into spats um, with um, mainland Chinese people who are around and all that, so it would be really nice if they have a way to, to head that off. And I haven't seen the design, so I don't know if it, if it makes it super, super clear for everybody who's going to be viewing these passports, as Sean said, there could be some ancillary repercussions, um, you know, as people find out what they really are and who they really represent. Of course, what is interesting, Sean, is 
when when Taiwan was first put on the passport in about 2003, I believe, it was a yay big. Then, of course, it actually shrunk in 2008. Uh, yeah, it appears that it shrunk just a tad bit uh, in 2008 when they finally added um, the RFID uh, chips on top of that. So there were some minor changes. Uh, I, of course, uh, uh, I, I don't think that was like a Ma administration thing because it was 2008. There would be no time for that. So it is interesting. However, um, another thing is Zhonghua Mingguo, Republic of China, was also made slightly smaller too, you know, uh, according to pictures that we have here. Um, I do know I have the, these old passports somewhere at home. But yeah, I mean, the size changes a little bit. But I have to say the new passport definitely has Taiwan at least, it looks like, two and a half, three times larger than the original one uh, in 2008 and 2003. So definitely this is something that's going to be in your face. And what's also noticeable is that Republic of China is no longer written on the top. In English, it is put in smaller letters that rings around uh, sort of like the, the national seal. And so therefore, uh, most people looking at the passports will just simply see Taiwan. Personally, do I welcome this? I have traveled all across the world. I do travel all the time. Um, and once a year, I go to at least one new country. And I have been to nations in the Middle East where people automatically will say, hey, where's your where's your visa? And I'm like, oh, yeah, I'm not one of, I'm not a Chinese national. And they'll say, wait, what do you mean? It says Republic of China. And then they'll flip through their books and, you know, it'll take a moment longer. But that moment is actually quite uncomfortable. I do have friends and colleagues that have traveled to places like Finland and what have you. In one case, uh, one student was put aside for 30 minutes in Finland while they assumed she was a Chinese national. And she kept telling them, no, I'm from Taiwan. And finally, they let her through when a supervisor came mercifully. 30 minutes in Finland. That's all right. It could have been three weeks in Yemen. <laughs> Much better. Anyway, looking at some other news about the National Palace Museum this week, where Culture Minister Lee Yong-de, he faced the ire of several lawmakers when he was grilled over reports the government plans to downgrade the museum's status as a cabinet-level body for political reasons. Now, Lee denied that and said, well, we're not, we're not basically changing it for political reasons. It was made a cabinet-level body because of political considerations, but the government is now looking to reclassify the National Palace Museum Museum based on professional considerations. Now, the statement follows reports the Cabinet is drafting an organisational reform plan under which the National Palace Museum could be downgraded from an independent second-tier Cabinet-level body to a third-tier body under the Ministry of Culture. Now, basically, the Ministry Minister of Culture defended that, saying there is currently nowhere in the world that a museum is considered a government department. Now, there have also been claims the government is planning to change the museum's name, but Cabinet's Secretary General Lee Meng Yen denied that, saying the cabinet has never discussed changing the National Muse National Palace Museum's title. So, Ralph, I mean, they're going to downgrade it technically to a. It's going to be run by the Minister of Culture now, rather than the cabinet. There's a museum running by the cabinet. Sound a bit odd to you? I had always been surprised by that when I first moved to Taiwan quite a few years ago. I I knew about the museum because it's famous internationally, and I'm started doing interviews and reporting, and I realized that the people in charge were in the cabinet, which, you know, it's unusual. Most museums I've been aware of are run by private organizations or foundations, nonprofits, etc. So it did seem unusual. I think the shifting of it into a, a Tier 3 organization under a ministry probably won't change the 
actual day-to-day or even the strategic administration of it. For one thing, they own these incredible artistic assets. A lot of them aren't even on display at any given time. And so there's, I would hope that the budget doesn't get cut and that they can continue expanding. They have a nice museum down in Jiayi, which has, um, you know, showcases a lot of Taiwanese culture um, that's independent of China. So I just certainly, it's a really popular attraction in the North and the South among locals, among visitors. So whoever runs it, I hope they continue to run it well with a generous amount of funding. Personally, I think that um, it should be under the Ministry of Culture in equivalent organizations around the world, uh, in the top 10 museums around the world. A lot of them are under their equivalent of their ministry. Uh, I do think it is really, really odd that it is a cabinet. It was a cabinet level position. I do think this is, you know, a good thing, especially when it comes to coordination for research. Um, the reason I say that is because, you know, as an, a separate entity, you know, the National Palace Museum has to jump through extra hoops or you know other museums have to jump through extra hoops when they work with the National Palace Museum. So I do think um, this is a welcome move. Now I have heard of accusations uh, especially from uh, people within the KMT that this is an effort at desinization uh, or maybe even a little anti-China. For me I find that I'm a little bit mixed on this one. The reason is because uh, anyone who's visited China will realize and and I mean uh, the people Republic of China will know that there are they have two imperial palace or palace museums, right? Because the, the Chinese translation of the National Palace Museum is basically the Imperial Palace Museum. So now there's basically three, two in China, one in Taiwan. The two in China, one is the Shenyang, which was made in the Qing Dynasty, and then there's the one in Beijing. And if you actually visit those, then you visit the one, you know, <laughs> in Taipei. There's a market difference, and you know you'll get the feeling that Beijing and Shenyang are the ones that have the real ones. Personally, I feel like the Taiwan one is a little bit fake, if not for the objects they had within. The outside area is made to seem very Chinese and what have you, and, and I get it. You know, um, they really want to raise the profile of this, and they're very sensitive towards anything that could be considered lowering that profile. But this really isn't. This is a background change. There's not going to be any difference outside. And like like it was said, you know, people may accuse this of salami slicing, but I'll believe that if they're going to try to change the name of uh, the National Palace Museum to be something else. Uh, until they do that, uh, I think it's still up there. It's going to make no difference to the general public whatsoever. Anyway, before we go this week, the Environmental Protection Administration announced that owners of noisy vehicles will face fines from January the 1st if it's determined that the sound-emitting trucks, buses, cars, motorcycles or scooters are kicking up a racket in excess of newly drafted noise pollution standards. Now, the EPA says it will be using high-tech fixed and mobile noise cameras to crack down on such vehicles. Now, according to the recently revised regulations governing noise from running vehicles, Vehicles. Such noise cannot be louder than 86 decibels on roads with a speed limit of under 50 kilometres an hour and 90 decibels where the speed limit is between 50 and 90 kilometres an hour. So, Ralph, noisy motorcycles, noisy vehicles, are you happy they're going to get fined? Um, yes and no. It is a really noisy city. Um, there's nothing worse than trying to get on a phone call at an intersection and all the scooters come pouring off through the, through the green light and you can't hear yourself talk. You have to call the person back. You can't have a conversation with the person you're walking with. Um, but let's face it, you know, Taiwan is a, is a, a scooter-driven 
pardon the pun, society. People need those vehicles. Um, they're more affordable than cars, of course. They're even more affordable than a lot of the electric scooters that are starting to come out. So um, do we really want to be forcing all these people to get new engines or to buy new scooters just because of the noise? I would suggest that people here are probably pretty used to it. I, I know better now than to make a phone call when I'm standing at an intersection. So um, it, it's just one of those things. It, it reminds me of the debate we have in the city of Taipei every time there's an election here about whether we should get rid of these illegal rooftop units. And I think you know at least one mayor has said they should, and then they don't do it <clears throat> uh, because you know it's another kind of vestige of Taiwan's poverty. You just you had to build these things. Um, you, you took what you could get when you could get it. And then the scooters are also kind of a sign of, you know, it's, it's you know a lot of people are still very lower middle class. And they need these things. So that's one thing. And I kind of doubt that it's going to be the sort of regulation that's universally widely enforced. There might be some selective enforcement of it based on complaints. Uh, a lot of law enforcement is done here. Um, or perhaps certain companies that um, regulators don't like. There might be a few bus companies out there who, you know, they're just waiting to go after um, that kind of, um, that sort of enforcement of the rules. But I, I, I doubt it, and I hope it's not universal quite so fast. I think that actually there's also a tech aspect to this one. And this is because uh, earlier this year, there was some uh, minor controversy uh, among motorcycle owners and enthusiasts. And this is because the roads at the junction between Jilong Road and New Taipei City are often a popular place for people to speed. And they had also noise cameras there. And there was a problem because even if you had a stock motorcycle that was not designed to be nowhere near that, loud, or I mean scooter, sorry, um, some of them were still caught occasionally. Now, the difference is these new cameras that we're talking about here are not like the old ones, which also have microphones, but they weren't able to determine exactly which vehicle was making that noise. The new uh, noise cameras can actually pinpoint through a network of microphones, um, you know, which on the screen, which vehicle on the screen is producing that much noise to fairly good accuracy, it seems. And um, so it, 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 to imagine it, imagine um, sort of like a diagram, a video camera, except this time there are circular highlights that highlight where that noise is coming from. Uh, so in that aspect, it can help catch uh, especially uh, heavier motor riders or even modified cars who love uh, modified mufflers, especially racing at three in the morning when there's less traffic. Uh, personally, as somebody who lives in Xinyin, Taipei, I do hear a lot of noise at night. I am lucky my uh, my apartment is well soundproof, but my office is not. So occasionally we would make a recording there and then we'll hear a motorcycle whiz by. Uh, I, I do welcome this new uh, change. I do welcome the new technology that they're putting in. I also think that uh, there is still a minor possibility, of course, of people getting falsely flagged because they have a stock muffler. In those cases, then maybe there should be some leeway with the law that allows you, as a first-time offender, to bring in the vehicle for inspection. But other than that, I'm all for quieter. Uh, it was mentioned that electric vehicles uh, could be more expensive. Yes and no, actually. Uh, I have a GoGro, and thankfully, because of um, government incentives, it was actually the cheapest scooter I could get. 
Um, and then, uh, not to mention, there's a lot more competition nowadays. So you can get, a, let's say, a GoGoRo or an a GoGoRo equivalent, because many other companies have signed with GoGoRo for that, uh, for as little as 70000 which is roughly the price of a gas scooter anyway. Right, and Ralph, of course, these noise cameras, the government's saying that they're going to put notices 100 metres ahead of each camera to warn the motorists. I mean, don't you think this sort of takes the fun out of it? Um, I guess I'm, I'm gathering here that perhaps this decibel limit, I'm not a, you know, a sound engineer at all, and I don't know what these numbers, in fact, mean, if it applies to common scooters or if it's just for the, the, the really you know, hardcore, souped-up motorcycles. Um, if it's just for the, for the more advanced, if you will, sort of vehicles, then uh, I'm more in favor of it. I'm also more in favor of having those postings, as you mentioned, because I think there's already some out there. If you go up Highway 9 from <clears throat> from Xindian, from, from Bitan, up toward Pinglin, which is a, a, a stretch of about 20, 30 kilometers, um, that's where the, the big motor scooters got raised, and they've already put up signs and put up cameras saying, don't do this, we're gonna, you're going to get caught if you do it. And I don't know if that's had any impact, but perhaps that's what the government's really after. And um, I hope that the motorcycles do heed the signs. It's dangerous. It's noisy. If you're on a bike, if you're on foot, uh, if you're trying to enjoy yourself out there, it doesn't really happen. And that's where we'll leave it here on Taiwan This Week This Week. And I've been joined in the studio today by Sean Su. Thank you for having me. And on the telephone by Ralph Jennings. Thanks, Gavin. And thanks for tuning in to this week's edition of Taiwan This Week here on ICRT with me, Gavin Phipps. And don't forget to check out Taiwan This Week podcasts on our favourite podcast app where you can get access to all our previous shows. Tune in again next Friday evening at 9 for another informative look at the top stories of the week with Taiwan This Week. And don't forget to also check out our podcast on our website, icrt.com.tw. Now keep it here for more music and news only on ICRT FM 100.